Ring, 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 ring. Hello? Hi, what are you doing? Um, I'm uh, making some popcorn and uh, trying on different bras. Ooh, what kind of popcorn? It's that stupid one from that Indiana dickhead, Orville Redenbacher. Ooh, real butter or fake butter? Listen, I'm at the beginning of a horror movie. Oh, yeah? That's right. Do you like movie podcasts? I do. What's your favorite scary movie? My favorite scary movie is The Fog of War. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> so would you pick? Really? You can't give me like a real... I'm trying it's out actually here. Terri- I'm standing it's out here. It's actually terrifying. I know it's, it's actually terrifying. terrifying. It's actually terrifying, but I'm out here standing in the bushes wearing a fucking scream you mask. You asked. This is give and take here. I realize. Will you just murder me already? Fine. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, everyone, it's Blockbuster Film School. It's spooky time. It's Halloween. Ooh. Your candy has THC in it. Your kids are going to get cooler. Like we would waste drug candy on children. Give me an effing break. And I can speak from experience. THC does not make you cooler. That's strong disagree. I also would not waste my razor blades on children. Those are also expensive. Have you ever heard of the West Craven Dollar Shave Club? I have. Well, everybody, we are doing for our Halloween episode, as well as our live show. If you want to come check us out, we are doing a master of horror based on the title given to him by Basic Cable. Showtime was a premium network. Oh, that's true. He just charged for $49 a month. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Well, how, much, just, how much money did it just charge? just charged $4.99 a month. That is fair. That is fair. We are doing Mr. Wes Craven. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. Hopefully he is not haunting teenagers' dreams. I don't think he actually was a bad dude. I think he was actually a pretty no. sweet dude. He's haunting film students' bad dreams. I agree. And anyone who's ever seen... The people under the stairs. Or Vampire in Brooklyn. Ooh, man, there's some choice stories about Vampire in Brooklyn, (laughs) about how Eddie Murphy actually came to him and said, hey, I love The Hills Have Eyes. I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I want to make a movie with you. And Wes Craven said, sweet, let's make a movie. And then Eddie Murphy said, I don't want to be funny in it. And Wes Craven went, oh, shit, I'm fucked. You don't want to be funny in it at all? No, not at all. On purpose? I just want it to be a real horror movie. And then Wes Craven was like, fuck, I don't know, man. Whatever. Fine. Eddie Murphy said I had to make a movie for him. And that's how good Vampire in Brooklyn is. We'll talk about it. I'm Alex Bonner. I'm joined, as always, by the fabulous Mr. Nicholas Souter. Are you spooked out, Nick? There's so much spooky. <laughs> this is what we call you. Mucho spooky. Mucho spooky. That's her luchador name. It's actually pretty solid. Yeah. I just come out with uh, one of those plastic orange jack-o'-lantern candy (laughs) things on my head, and I don't get like a real mask. (laughs) And then someone immediately hits you with a chair. I would watch the shit out of that. Just waving my arms, screaming, running in a circle. (laughs) And as always, we have super producer Brian Tips. It's me, Brian Tips. Well, that's Brian sporting his full Crypt Keeper outfit right now. (laughs) We need to get him a lodging. <laughs> His voice is very dry. That's a big thing in spooky season is on commercials, on horror movies. Everyone's voice is very, you guys, maybe some hot water with lemon. I think they realize the scariest thing is smoking unfiltered cigarettes. <laughs> so all these old people right now are just 
gasping for saliva there <laughs> the last 10 years they're alive. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it is a creepy look. It's a creepy look. Yeah. But we're going to talk about Mr. Wes Craven and his horrific films, which are terrifying to the rubes. But to a couple of us, they're just super fun and super, how to put this, he has a bunch of movies that are terrible, but then every so often he directs a movie that changes the entire game. He is able to come up with entirely new genres every so often. It's extremely self-sabotaging. Because <laughs> he goes, here, we're doing this now. And then he runs it into the ground. And then he has to go, oh, shit. Ah, okay. Sh- <laughs> oh, shit. Now I have to come up with an entirely new yeah. horror genre. So Wes, we're not going to make any of your movies. You have to come up with something else that isn't this. Oh, what if he had... Potato peelers for fingers. Get out of get out of my office. What if Nev Campbell's college professor was the killer? What? All right, so we're Sorry, gonna talk. Lori Metcalf. <laughs> she has an Oscar. So now we're gonna talk about Mr. Wes Craven. Nick, we'll start with our usual gambit. What was the first Wes Craven movie you remember seeing? First Wes Craven movie I remember seeing was The Serpent and the Rainbow. On TNT. Really? I saw a bunch of the sequels for Nightmare on Elm Street first, but he didn't direct any of those until Wes Craven's new nightmare. Oh, yeah. He invented meta. So because of... He kind of did. Yeah. It's not terrible. Visually, it's amazing. But Serpent of the Rainbow is just dull. Kind of is a little bit of his problem sometimes. And it looks great. But because of that... and hearing about like oh you should have seen this it's like fuck you david uh that's my cousin um (laughs) we sought out a nightmare on elm street and like the worst part is i admit to him he was right what the nightmare was good yeah because i just hate my cousin (laughs) i've never listened to pearl jam because he wore one of their shirts once (laughs) i appreciate your vindictiveness listen the last time we spoke he wanted to see event horizon i want to see copland Ooh, I like While I was in theaters. I like both those movies. I saw both those movies in the theater. Not but you're not my family, so <laughs> we have somehow found a way to continue being friends. That is true. Yeah. That is what true. was the first Wes Craven movie you've seen? As you said, in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, Freddy Krueger was like Ronald McDonald in terms of the United States. He was a national hero to weirdos. And my cousins basically rented the original Nightmare on Elm Street and- we're like, you're going to be so scared. I mean, I was a kid. I was probably like seven years old. And I watched it, and I was not that scared, but I definitely enjoyed it. I thought it was very fun. It's and a creepy movie. Yes, yes. When the geyser of blood happens, I kind of popped. I literally. It was amazing. I, I thought it was the was funniest like, fucking thing <laughs> I've ever seen. I will say, for me, that was one of those moments where, as a kid who was a little bit of a scaredy cat about horror movies, to see that movie and realize that it wasn't that scary, but was actually kind of gory and fun and nuts. And it forever changed me and made me into horror movies and made me want to watch them and realize that there's almost like a side genre of horror. There's horror movies that are actually trying to scare the shit out of you. And then there are horror movies that are spooky and creepy, but have just kind of this fun, weird edge, maybe slightly sexual edge. And it's more about the entertainment of it. And I think, that for me was always the thing that I liked the most about Wes Craven. I thought that is he really trying to scare you or is he just trying to entertain the living shit out of you? I feel like he settled for trying to entertain you. 
As always, I meant to make a comedy. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant to make. It was so bad. It was funny. Yes, I did that on purpose. I was trying to do that. We should get into the man. We should talk about it. We could do all these points. Yeah, let's get into him. R.I.P. He has sadly passed away. But he was born August 2nd, 1939 in Cleveland, Ohio. That's where Trent Reznor is from. That is true. There's quite a few famous American artists who are from Cleveland, Ohio. He passed away. Super uh, producer Brian Taps is shaking his head no. <laughs> Chrissy Hind? Huey Lewis? Huey Lewis. Halle Berry? Halle Berry. Go back and listen to the Halle Berry episode. There's quite a few. Cleveland Also, has- go back and listen to the Huey Lewis episode. <laughs> a very underrated episode. As I said, he was born in Cleveland in 1939. He passed away in Los Angeles in 2015. We were having a party when I found out he died. Yeah. Which I was, went around to a Halloween everybody. party. Well, no, it wasn't. What, what no, kind of we, it was like August 30th. We were just having some random party. Yeah. <laughs> House was filled with people. It was. It was weird. I don't yeah. know what was happening, but he sadly has left this realm to jump between teenagers' dreams and have a claw hand. I'm not entirely sure what's going on, but he, as I said, was born in Cleveland, but his family, his parents were super religious, maybe the most religious out of any of the people we've ever talked about. His parents were mega fundamentalist Baptists. He said in several interviews that he did not see a film that wasn't one or two Disney films in his childhood until he was a senior in college. And then he had to sneak away from his super religious college, which is a college here pretty close to Chicago called Wheaton College which is creepy and super religious to this day. Eat that Wheaton College. And they can't admit they're listening to the podcast and they'll go to hell. That's true. And once every so often, like their lame ass football players and football team get accused of like raping people. Mm, Nothing weird about that. Just Wheaton College. Just boys will be boys in a dry town. You know, creepy weirdos. Anyways, he got a bachelor's in history He went to John Hopkins University to get a master's in humanities and history. He was a college professor. He didn't really start his career until his mid-30s, where he finally said to himself that he hated all this weird religious bullshit and he was done with it to a level that was epic because he left being a college professor. It's kind of interesting him being a college professor, though, a little bit in some of his movies and that all of his movies are about groups of kids, particularly teenagers, and that he was so engrossed in academia for a while. So he kind of knew groups and groups of kids and kind of heard all of their weird stories. All of their stories had to do with sex and violence. And that was kind of their main terrors that they had in their lives. Just something to kind of think about a little bit. And they don't have anything else going on in their lives. Exactly. It's interesting, though. His best movies have to do with that. When he kind of branches away from that and doesn't make ensemble movies about teenagers, it doesn't really work. But it's interesting because he does have a nice sense in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, at least for one movie, of the zeitgeist of teenagers. He puts interesting music, interesting clothes he puts Johnny Depp in a fucking movie. I mean, he puts Nev Campbell in a movie and really jumpstarts her career. I mean, he has a good sense of what works in Hollywood, which I think is something that made him jump out. He had this kind of side life because he started teaching at Westminster College, which is in New York. And 
he started befriending these guys who were like Steve Chapman and Harry Chapman. And interesting, Steve and Harry Chapman were friends of his. Harry Chapman would end up being kind of a slightly famous, you know, rock star a little bit. But they were kind of intellectuals and they connected him in with people who are making movies. And if you don't know, in the 1970s in New York, the main film industry that was going on was something called pornography, something Brian Tepps is very familiar with. He has a tattoo that just says pornography on his chest. It doesn't He's make just sense. a really big Cure fan. <laughs> but little known fact, when he left the academic world, he on the side had always been a secret movie nerd after he started watching movies at the end of college. And he even got so nerdy that he bought his own 60 millimeter camera. He would kind of record movies and figure out how to edit them, how to do sound. And at the time that was a rarer skill. And so when he was looking for work, when he left academia, he got connected into that entire New York pornographic scene where he would direct who knows how many pornographic films because he did them under different pseudonyms. But when you leave creepy fundamentalist Christian lifestyles, sometimes you go hardcore. We're like, I've had enough of this. I'm going to direct pornography. And he at one point directed some movies under the name Abe Snake, which I always <laughs> thought was kind of fun. But directing porno movies, it led him to a man named Sean S. Cunningham, who we would know would and go on to direct and sort of lead the Friday the 13th horror movie genre, and maybe along with Halloween as the two big slasher genres. And it made him kind of decide that he was going to do something different. And even though he was a big giant nerd and he was super into Bergman and Hitchcock and Federico Fellini and Bunel and Truffaut, he was a huge French New Wave and uh, European cinema fan. Weirdly enough, he took the story for The Virgin Spring later, which was kind of his idea. The Virgin Spring would come back a lot as a theme and a horror idea. It's a Bergman film that's based on a legend in Sweden, that guess what is about young girls who are attacked by spirits and by regular people controlled by spirits. It's interesting that he connected those two as a nerd, but it was Sean S. Cunningham who had hired him. He was editing movies for him. And Sean S. Cunningham had a connection into a bunch of Boston theaters. And just has something to explain to everybody who listens to Blockbuster Film School. But right now, I will stop talking in a minute and let Nick talk because he's funnier than me. But I just have to explain this. In the past, particularly in the 70s, there wasn't mega conglomerates. You literally had small groups of people who owned theaters. And there was this group of guys who owned theaters in Boston. And when they would have a big movie come, they also wanted a quote-unquote B-side for like their drive-in. You know, So people would come to see two movies at the drive-in or they'd come on the weekends to see a double feature. And they wanted a B-movie, a.k.a. where the term B-movie comes from. And they would commission guys like Sean S. Cunningham to make a B movie for them so that that would come on before the main feature and people would stay longer, eat more popcorn, drink more beer, drink more Coke, whatever. And they would get the entirety of the profits for the movie because they had financed this shitty little movie. This does not happen really anymore, but no, now it's Netflix. Exactly. Right. I guess Netflix is now yeah. slightly kind of that idea. It's like, we'll make your goofy ass little movie, but we get to own it and you get to, 
have a movie yeah. on Netflix to maybe make a bigger movie if it hits. When um, Carpenter's Halloween opened, it started in one market and then just grew into bigger and bigger markets by people who just own these theaters in different cities. So Halloween was in theaters originally for two years. Yeah. That's how it wound up making like $75 million because it was all independent. Yeah. A lot of it was mafia owned, but they still like <laughs> movies. Sure. And then you could have like it's a great way to launder money. Exactly. It's oh man, like there's so many movies where like there's no way it made that much money. Guess what? It didn't. It didn't, but they said it did. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But Tony was running a really good numbers game. Yeah. So guess what? It's all on paper now. Matthew McConaughey movie made a lot of money. (laughs) You are totally correct. The mafia was definitely involved in this. And Sean S. Cunningham came to Wes Craven, who was his really good buddy and his main right-hand man who helped him write stuff, helped him edit stuff, helped him do basically everything. And he said, hey, Wes, I don't have time for this shit. The Boston guys want a B movie, a horror movie. I want you to do it. I don't have time for it. You got to do it. And Craven was like, uh, okay. And he was like, what do they want? And literally he said, they want something dirty with naked girls in it that's scary. And he was like, okay. And his very first film, his directorial debut, as I said, to his own nerddom, he took The Virgin Spring, the Inger Bergman movie about the gods befalling upon young women and raping them, but also it's like something of like, it's a myth. It's based on a poem. But he decided to make a movie called The Last House on the Left, which now goes into lots of stuff. There's a famous podcast called The Last Podcast on the Left. There's certain things that have come from that, but wildly, it was a shocking movie at the time. Nick, what do you think of The Last House on the Left? I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a huge fan I don't either. like it at all, honestly. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stories in me. So like, oh, I saw that in grade school. I saw this in grade mm-hmm. school. I should not have seen this in grade school. There is a problem here. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, about what my, happened um, I had too much freedom you. in a child. I'm realizing this now. <laughs> I am not proud of a lot of this. Anyways, I just wish... I hadn't seen it so young because, like, it's a very hard movie to watch in general. Yeah, it kind of is. I uh, did a lot of fast forwarding through this movie, and then it just got to the, the rape parts. Sorry, that's terrible. <laughs> pre- not just the assault parts. <laughs> I don't like this movie at all. And then um, you just watch these grief-stricken parents at the end of the movie beat the fuck out of and kill three people. Yes, and you're like, well, I've learned a lot about life, and I don't like it. It doesn't really reflect any of the other movies he would make after this. If you've never seen The Last House on the Left, it is a movie in which some young girls are attacked by a group of ruffians, which also have women in it, men and women, who sort of rape and torture them. And it's a brutal movie. And then, as Nick was saying, the second part of the movie is the parents then seek revenge on this group of terrible people who did this to their kids. And then they brutally murder them. And the thing I'll give Craven is that they told him to make a movie that would scare the suburbanites and freak them out. Yeah. And he was like, well, if I'm going to make a movie (laughs) that is going to scare the suburbanites and freak them out, I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to make the weirdest, most heinous shit I can think of. And it's weird and heinous. It is. And then I saw him being interviewed about it once and like, they asked him something. He goes, well, the movie's about Vietnam War. 
And I'm like, okay, I get that, but no. I mean, but also, like, when you listen to Craven, I will give him the benefit of the doubt, though. He's such a smart, insightful guy. He's not at all. He was. He was, RIP. It's not so much a element of shock value. He just understood that. He understood that it would be shocking, and he understood that it would be rough to watch, but he also kind of had this thing. He's like, if I make something so violent and crazy and against the norms of things that come out, I might make enough noise that people might see. And he was right. But he also talked about how outside of his weirdo friends like Sean S. Cunningham, he basically lost his entire friend base. His wife divorced him. A bunch of people were so mad at him. His entire religious family like wouldn't talk to him for years because he had made this movie. And Weirdly enough, if he had made something where he pulled punches and made a movie that wasn't as hyper violent and hyper frightening, he probably would have stayed in this kind of intellectual, slightly religious lifestyle. And because he had been cut out, I saw this interview with him where he was like, well, then I had to double down and be a film director. And even though The Last House on the Left is a pretty big hit, when it comes out, it makes a lot of money. It was made for $87,000 and it made $5 million just at the box office because of just word of mouth. Because if people were like, have you seen this? It's horrifying. It's, the, you know, it's, oh, it'll wreck your brain. It turned you insane. But as Nick said, he was going off of the fact that by that point, he had been watching literally footage of bloody shot up guys on the news in Vietnam every single day and hearing stories about American soldiers getting out of their minds and raping people. And then they show footage of burnt up naked Vietnamese children on the news. And he just kind of said to himself, I mean, this whole faux culture we've created in the fifties and sixties where things aren't violent, things aren't horrifying is bullshit. But from 1972 to 1977, he didn't make a movie because he said, I'm not a horror director. I'm a real director. <laughs> I'm going to write movies that are comedies and dramas and historical fiction. And guess how many of those movies got made, Nick? None of them. None of them. They were all fails. All of his scripts never got bought. Nothing happened. And then finally, Sean S. Cunningham finally got fed up with him and said, you have to make Another horror movie. It is what we can sell, you clown. And to Craven's credit, he said to himself, all right, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And he made a movie in 1977 that stars Susan Lanier, Michael Berryman, and Dee Wallace, I believe is probably the most famous of them, is a movie called The Hills Have Eyes. Nick, what do you think about The Hills Have Eyes? Not a huge fan. (laughs) <laughs> any other thoughts uh i like it more than the house the last house on the left for sure it's not as gratuitous but there is a couple more sexual assaults in this movie it's hard to watch i think it is legitimately a creepy movie to watch mm-hmm. it's not i'm not a fan i'm not saying it's a bad movie it's way better made i mean you have five years to make a better movie <laughs> so true. he did he did the fucking creepy nuclear bomb radiation affected cannibals. Yes. Is a scary idea. I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre better, but this is a nice little creepy cannibal universe he creates. Because there's a lot of sequels too that he was sort of involved with. He didn't direct any of them. But like, if you're gonna make a weird franchise about a bunch of fucking people who look like Geico cavemen. (laughs) It's just that one big dude. That one dude 
freaks me. I don't fucking like that guy. Yeah, that guy's a spooky dude. His name, I think, was... Jorgen Forehead. It was like Martin Spear or something. Anyway, but it's appropriate. Yeah. It is the first one where Craven goes now and is like, I'm going to make horror movies. Yeah. And it is slightly supernatural. As you said, there's a radioactive family that lives in the hills in Nevada who are roaming around, stealing people and eating them and raping them. And just once again, it is a little bit of like the hillbillies are out to get us. It's something that American suburbanites are afraid of. It's, you know, kind of I'm afraid of hillbillies. I don't live in the suburbs. I understand. But I'm saying like the I'm not really afraid of hillbillies, but I know what you mean in terms of. Yeah, the people who raided the White House are horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't tip well. No, but I don't worry about radioactive cannibal families living in the woods. It's not really a concern of mine most of the time. Yeah. Also, I realize this is not related to the film, but uh, there was uh, four hillbillies into the restaurant this weekend, and I had to tell all of them in a row, no. You don't put the tray on the scale, just the salad bar container with food. <laughs> and then all four of them in a row just took their tray. I'm like, dude, is anyone listening? Am I alone in here? Stop it. So this isn't old country buffet? The best is how much for one egg? I'm like, I don't know. Go weigh it. <laughs> one egg? What Jeez are you doing? Crease. Just put it in your mouth and get out of here. Just put the whole egg in your mouth and leave. That's the cost. You you leaving now. You leave and you never come back. <laughs> Take two. Fuck it. But once again, once again. Huge this, this movie cost $500,000 to make. It made $25 million at the box office. And Sean S. Cunningham it was telling the story where that happened. And that weekend, Cunningham said, you stupid son of a bitch. You could have been doing this for five years and you were making pornos and like eating Triscuits and not having your power on at your apartment, you idiot. And Craven kind of said to himself, all right, ah, fine, screw it. But once again, that movie is based on why I kind of like Craven. He's such a nerd. He based that movie on a Scottish legend about a cannibal character called Sonny Bean, that it was just this legendary story that was told to Scottish children that if you, you know, wandered off into the woods, like Sonny Bean would eat you and he'd take you into his cave. And he just kind of said to himself, Hmm, maybe I could just make that story again. So, it made a bunch of money, and by that point, it kind of put him on the map because that movie came out with Vanguard, which at the time was another tiny studio. But, you know, making a Grindhouse movie that had rape in it, Hollywood's like, yeah, you made some money, whatever. But this was a horror movie that came out at drive throughs drive throughs drive-ins, and came out with a studio. Can a milkshake and the hills have eyes? <laughs> came out with a studio that worked with actual Hollywood. And they said, we want you to make some movies. And in 1981, he made a movie called Deadly Blessing, starring Marion Jensen and a baby Sharon Stone. Have you ever seen Deadly Blessings, Nick? About five minutes. <laughs> I turned it on because I love Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, Ernest Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine. It was dumb as shit. I didn't watch it. But I remember reading Academy Award winner Ernest Borgnine nominated for a Razzie <laughs> Award. I was like, yeah. For that's deadly, a, if anything says a Wes Craven movie, more than that sentence. Yeah. The film tells the story of a strange figure committing murder in a contemporary community that is not far from another community 
that believes in ancient evil and curses. It's suburbanites in the city. Yep. Yep. Also, there's boobs, and it's once again him. The cover box is just tits. It is mostly just boobs, yes. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. In 1982, he made Swamp Thing, a comic book adaptation of one of my absolute favorite sets of graphic novels. If you don't realize, Alan Moore had a run on Swamp Thing that is one of the most wonderful pieces of writing in the history of comics. It's an unbelievably good, unbelievably interesting, spiritual, introspective thing. Uh, this is not that. This is the West Craven 1982 Swamp Thing. What'd you think of Swamp Thing, Nick? Adrian Barbeau. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be my catchphrase for the episode. I'm not a huge fan of this. <laughs> uh, this movie's dumb. Mm-hmm. Is this fucking dumb? I legit watched it because I was like, oh, Adrian Barbeau. She was in The Fog. She was in Escape from New York. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's in Swamp Thing. Yep, that's a movie. Yep, that's a movie. Uh, I don't think I ever watched the whole thing. I watched at least half. It definitely came on TV sometimes when I was a kid and I would watch it. And weirdly enough, it freaked me out because for whatever reason, when so you grew up in a swamp, uh, <laughs> Chicago, that's right. Uh, yeah, Lake Michigan. <laughs> the thing that freaked me out and still does to this day is less about murderers and monsters. Those stories freak me out less. And the story of Alec Holland, like a guy who's trying to do something good and then he gets betrayed, kind of like the story of RoboCop, you know, what they do to Murphy in the beginning of RoboCop is scarier. You know what I mean? Someone trying to do something decent and they run into the wrong people and they. I do not tell you this, but you're not Jesus. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. You also outlived him. That And I, Murphy. That is true. And I'm pretty sure Alec Guinness. That is fair. What it's also a is. mega bummer because years later I would read the actual Alan Moore Swamp thing and it was so good. And that pissed me off more that this movie was so stupid. So stupid. I want to go out on a limb here. Mm. I don't really remember it either, but I remember seeing it more than I saw this movie. The USA TV show right. was better than the movie. Which he made a lot of money on, too, though, because they kind of adapted. This movie made a little bit of money, and then they made the USA TV show, which was terrible. But it was, had, it was so Heather dumb. Locklear in it. It's true. <laughs> oh, Swamp Thing. How do I get to <sighs> Beverly Hill? Wait, she was on Melrose Place. <laughs> hey, Swamp Thing. How do I get to Models, Inc.? No, wait, it was Melrose. Hold on. Hey, Swamp Thing. Oh, and then also the way they have Swamp Thing, where in the comics, he's this, he was a doctor who now has been turned into this. So he's an interesting Frankenstein character, right? Where he's horrible to look at, but he's very smart and very poetic and very sad that he's in this way. In the movies, I, Swamp Thing, I, touch boob. I was like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. Um, That is verbatim my prom night. (laughs) I cannot believe she said to me that her name was Swamp Thing. So what you're saying is you love Swamp Thing. So the next movie (laughs) is, uh, this is where we really start to get into his career. But we, we should say, in terms of money, I think other than Deadly Blessing, Last House, The Hills Have Eyes, and Swamp Thing all make moolah. And so he gets approached by a dude who is running a studio that now is ubiquitous in Hollywood, a guy named Bob Shea, RIP as well. He created a mini studio that we all know and love now called New Line Cinema. 
It is extremely important. Bob Shea is kind of a hero of mine. Lord of the Rings wouldn't have happened. The Ninja Turtles movies, Boogie Nights. I mean, there's yeah. so many. The Bob Shea murders. I, <laughs> there's just so much stuff that wouldn't have gone down if Bob Shea, who was a guy who, no joke, sold VHS tapes out of the trunk of his car, right? And he made enough money doing that. He got like a hundred thousand bucks together and he started a little studio and he kept selling VHS and he had befriended and was kind of one of these guys. He was from Detroit, but he had lived in New York for a long time and he had befriended all of the weird VHS distributors, which also, as we should say to our Blockbuster Film School crew, if you don't know, uh, VHS at this moment really begins to create a second true stream for cinema. Cinema was in trouble People literally within movies thought that the movies would die and TV would take over. Watching movies just in the movie theater made money, but having a secondary element of income, having another way to finance movies, they weren't really sure what would happen. And then the VHS player goes into everyone's home and then there are, oh, I don't know, rental stores for VHS, including one called Blockbuster that me and Nick worked at. And this also gave rise to, in my opinion, kind of one of the golden ages of horror movies, particularly because horror movies could be financed for cheap, distributed directly on VHS, and then make some money. And even crazier, they created a fan base of horror. And New Line Cinema wanted to make a horror movie. They wanted to make something really cool. And Bob Shea had been following Wes Craven. He had befriended him. And he was like, I want to make a real one. I want to make one that actually looks like a movie. And I want it to be real spooky. And Sean S. Cunningham, as we said, who was good pals with both of them, had already made Friday the 13th. It had come out and was a big hit, a big surprise hit as well. But it was a slasher about a bunch of teenagers who let her son drown. Who let her son drown. And uh, this Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984. Right. And Friday the 13th came out in 1980. So that means by 1984, there was already four Friday the 13th movies. Correct. Because they just pumped those out yearly. Yeah. And we're just like, sequel, here, eat it. And teenagers were like, okay, for a while. And then they're like, this is stupid. <laughs> and then luckily- Nightmare on Elm Street came. Yes, as it was saying, in 1984, finally Wes Craven gets actual money to make a true horror movie. Now, granted, it's still made by the seat of the pants. New Line Cinema now is ubiquitous in Hollywood, but this was the first movie they ever really made. They weren't sure if it would come together. Media, which if anybody remembers, was a big VHS house. Oh, they yeah. saved them, gave them a bunch of cash to finish the movie because they saw the dailies of it and we should get into this a little bit. This is where, if you have any beef with Wes Craven, this is one of the ones where I'm willing to absolutely defend him. It's different. I know that the horror movie Zeitgeist was happening, but this is something else. What do you think? What are just your takes on uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street? I love this movie. This movie is perfect. Nothing is scarier to you on a personal level than a fucking nightmare. You wake up, mm. you're freaking out. And by the time you realize what your dream was, it's already gone, and then you're just freaked out the rest of your fucking day. Everybody is afraid of nightmares. The movie's based on the fact that a bunch of kids were having heart attacks in their nightmares. Yeah, in Cambodia or whatever. Yeah. 
Which, like, once again, he was reading. He loves to fucking read. He likes to read. Yeah. And then he uses those words to make a bed spit out all the blood from The Shining. <laughs> it's so awesome. Some of the main guys that he got were guys who would go on to make Ghostbusters and some of the guys who had defected from Lucasfilm. Craven had gotten connected into it to really make because that was part of his problem. He was so pissed that he didn't have the effects look the way he wanted them to look. And so by the time that A Nightmare on Elm Street came out, he really was able to, and to their own credit, I mean, they build a room that flips upside down so that they can have effects where people seem to float on the ceiling and blood seems to come from the bed, but it's pouring up into the ceiling. And it's a simple magic trick, but it looks so dope. And once again, I think his best movies are when he gets an ensemble cast of talented younger actors who and slowly murders them off. Yes, absolutely. He kind of created it. I mean, obviously, the most famous of them is Johnny Depp. Is This is his first movie. He also did a lot of the casting, which I always liked. John Saxon is in it. And then, obviously, super famous at this point. He cast a very weird kind of unknown TV actor named Robert England to play a character who is now... Like I said, almost as ubiquitous in American culture as like Uncle Sam. It's like, do you know who Freddy Krueger is? He made a character. And also, by that point, the slasher stuff had happened. But Michael Myers wears a mask. Jason wears a mask. All of these characters, they're interesting. They're spooky. But they're kind of these monsters who don't have voices, don't have personalities, And then this guy's like, what if I have a weird burned up groundskeeper who is a trickster god who jumps from dream to dream, who is clever and creepily funny in a way and also just sadistic and resourceful? It's spookier in a way because you actually see Robert England's face and you hear his voice calling people bitch. He likes to. That doesn't start to the third one. (laughs) Oh, there's one bitch in the first one. Okay, Freddy Krueger starts off as a child molester. And then as the movies go on and he gets more famous, like, oh, no, it's that child killer. It's like, we can't sell this to kids. Dub it. And there's like, this is that child killer. And then just the entire thing changes and he becomes funny and more surreal. And that's also what makes the movies so much more fun than just a straight slasher movie is that they are another world. It's, it just keeps changing it from world to world, dream to dream. So they get to have these really weird, bizarre scenarios. They get to run through furnace rooms and shit. That's pretty basic. But like by the third one that he wrote, it's like a dolly painting at points. It's weird. Everything's connected. But he started that with this one. And yeah, eventually Freddy Krueger becomes Johnny Carson. He gets like (laughs) an early evening TV show at some point. And he's in commercials for shit. Like... He's a child molester turned child killer. You're right. You just change one word and everyone's like, oh, I'm cool with that. That's the Freddy character is problematic in certain ways, but he became so beloved as a character that they had to kind of retcon him a little bit because little kids were dressing up as him for Halloween. Still to this day, little kids dress up as Freddy. People don't pay attention during movies. No, that's true. And it is weird in America. Some of our famous cultural art heroes in America are just straight up murderers. Yeah. (laughs) They're terrible murderers. There's literally children walking around going, I'll be back. It's like, dude, (laughs) I get it. He killed 17 police officers, but he killed a bunch of innocent people too. He shot that lady in front of her kids. Yeah. 
Sarah Connor. <laughs> oh my God, Daddy, I want to be him. Okay, he's the best. He is the best. He's going to give you the presidential challenge, so you're going to have to do some push-ups now. Because you're overweight. You fucking call that one. <laughs> When the three Americans are obese. Meanwhile, our Schwarzenegger is sitting there with a cigar going, I told you so. I tried to save California. You guys wasn't even listening to me. Oh, you can't do it. He's friends with Ronald Reagan. <laughs> My personal favorite also in the movie is that it's supposed to take place in Springwood, Ohio, but there is a lot of palm trees. It's all I didn't know that. It's all palm trees. Mm-hmm. There's less palm trees in a David Lee Roth solo music video. It would have made more sense to just have it take place in the suburbs of Los Angeles. Yeah. But whatever, they were going off of an homage of John Carpenter, I guess. Also, that movie is so psychedelic. The original Nightmare on Elm Street, the poster is awesome with Freddy's creepy glove, his blade glove over Nancy's face. The font for it, it looks awesome. The soundtrack is solid. A Nightmare on Elm Street is the one that, even though there was the horror zeitgeist happening at the time, Nightmare expands the whole thing. It makes it possible for horror movies to be anything you want them to be. They don't just have to be creepy murderers. They don't have to be just, you know, suburbanites being scared. This can be science fiction. It can be fantasy. It can be complete mayhem. And I think this is where Wes Craven's true influence is in cinema, is that this movie, as you said, spawned Tons of sequels, and then because there were tons of sequels of this, it made everyone think you could make sequels of anything you want. I mean, it was wild shit. And New Line is the house that Freddie built. New Line basically became a powerhouse in Hollywood because Freddy Krueger kept having a movie come out every couple of years that financed any weird shots they wanted to take and gave them the money by 89 to get the Ninja Turtles franchise. Like within five years, Wes Craven had redefined the whole game with this spooky movie. And I like that the sex stuff is not gratuitous. It kind of has to do with characters who are trying to figure out who they're going to be that weird moment between being a kid and being an adult. And the whole movie has to do with fractured families. It has to do with dynamics of what you think about your friends. And do you trust the people in your life that the adults have done something that screwed up your life? I mean, it's kind of, once again, a story about Vietnam a little bit. It is a movie about being sent into a nightmare by not your own fault. Your parents murdered this guy and he came back for vengeance on you. And it's not even your fault, but it's their fault. Who can you trust? And I don't know. Any other thoughts on uh, this particular Freddie? I think I've told this in the show before, so Brian can edit it out, but <laughs> my sister was having a sleepover. And for some reason, they were watching Nightmare on Elm Street in my room because I had the best TV. So my eventually, my room just became like, oh, we're going to watch it in there. I'm like, that's not fun. Uh, whatever. <laughs> they love you. Yeah, but then I have to go do something else. They watch shitty movies. But I came home from work, and they were watching a Nightmare on Elm Street with all the lights off in the entire house. In my room there, I crept upstairs and I could hear what part it was. And right at the part where he fucking raises the glove to his face the first time, I kicked open my bedroom door (laughs) and there were five teenage girls like leaping a foot backwards. (laughs) Still that part in The Fresh Prince when Will Smith jumps out from the back of the car wearing the Freddy mask and the Freddy glove and 
Carlton crashes the car is still my favorite part of the Fresh Prince. That was also just cross promotion because he <laughs> made a song for one of the movies called A Nightmare on My Street. Oh streets. my God, was, I didn't know that. It was one of the worst rap songs <laughs> of all time. And it's the third most popular song on Spotify for DJ Jazzy Jeff. That, that sounds right. All of that sounds correct. Also on the poster, it says Wes Craven's. A Nightmare on Elm Street. He does the John Carpenter thing where he puts his name on it. And it's a huge hit. New Line Cinema gets wild. It's a giant mega hit. And he comes back and he makes The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 for Castle <laughs> Productions. Nick, any? Uh, nothing. Yep, I nothing. Me neither. I saw it once. And I said, uh, this is. It literally caught it from the middle. On TMC, for you young people, that's the movie channel. <laughs> and I was like, is that the guy from The Hills Have Eyes? And it turned out to be The Hills Have Eyes too. And I go, oh, well, that's happening. And I just moved on with my life. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how I felt about when I saw it. I Yeah. I think I rented it on VHS from Blockbuster and watched, I'm going to say, three-fourths of it and just kind of did something else with my said, life. Fuck the lemons and you bailed. <laughs> However, in 1986, he makes an American science fiction horror film starring Christy Swanson and Anne Ramsey. Oh, Anne, you didn't have a cousin, Patty. It follows a teenage computer prodigy who implants a robot's hard drive into the brain of his teenage neighbor after she is pronounced brain dead. Have you ever seen Deadly Friend? I've only seen the part where Christy Swanson throws the basketball so hard, <laughs> she pops the mama from throwing over from the train's head. <laughs> Uh, there's some Instagram page <laughs> that I follow that posts it once a month. Yes. It's, it's amazing. It's terrible. Yes. It's very Wes Craven. Of the terrible Wes Craven ones, I think I enjoy it the most. It was if, not a hit. It was if a- I could just choose that one moment, I'm never going to see the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. And if there was some way for me to put just that scene on my wall, <laughs> I would. We're doing whole movies and not just like, Oh, shit, you saw on the internet because Wes Craven's a maniac. I can definitely see the moment, too, where some sort of, you know, producer was saying, like, they got this movie called Weird Science, and I want a movie that's, like, weird, but, like, it's, like, weird horror science. And Wes Craven's like, I don't know, man, whatever. How much am I getting paid for this? And And the producer also had a leftover head of Anne Ramsey (laughs) from a previous film where they didn't have a chance to blow up her head because of budgetary reasons. It's so insane. So they're like, hey, make this movie. Use this head. There's so much. cast Anne Ramsey already. (laughs) This movie, like, jumps the shark in terms of how much blood is in this movie. And as you said, just nonstop hilarious gore at this point. It's real stupid. Then 1988, one of Nick's. Movies that defined him. A movie called The Serpent and the Rainbow. They drive a nail into Bill Pullman's penis. (laughs) And that's the only thing I'm going to say about this film. That's correct. That does. Uh, David Ladd produced it, which uh, we talked about David Ladd. He produced stuff like Blade Runner. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody fell on hard times by 88. I will say, I just have to bring this up, of film nerddom, David Ladd took shots on people particularly auteurs, and he gave Wes Craven a three-movie deal at Universal. The problem is that when you get a three-movie deal at Universal, 
you no longer are allowed to just make crazy ass shit with your buddy who runs New Line and you can do whatever the fuck you want. This movie is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. But, but it's like for a movie where Bill Pullman is poisoned, buried, and somebody resurrects, pulls him out of the grave <laughs> and then tells him he's dead and he's a zombie. It's not exciting. It's not. It just rolls through again. I've never been so bored while watching a man get a nail driven into his penis. It's like a movie about zombies and vampires, kind of. It's very respective of the voodoo religion. Like, way more. (laughs) It is. it, It is, and it's way more than other horror films that are far more entertaining. Absolutely. I don't know what happened with him at Universal, but none of his Universal movies really no worked bad because the three we should just say this literally like in 88, 89 and 91. He makes The Serpent in the Rainbow, Shocker and The People Under the Stairs for Universal Pictures. Shocker's probably the most successful out of them, but quality wise, it just it's a steep decline yeah. Yeah. after Serpent in the Rainbow, which isn't very good at all. No. It's like you start off a D student, and then it's like, maybe you should just get <laughs> homeschooled by your parents by the time we reach the people under the stairs. To his credit, once again, him with his casting, always sitting on a casting, he casts a very young Peter Berg. It's Peter Berg's first movie, so he kind of knows sometimes who's good. Often his movies have people, Sharon Stone, he knows who's a good actor. It, it just <laughs> Also, though, we have to mention this. At the same time, he doesn't really care about acting that much. <laughs> Heather Lambkin Camp, Heather <laughs> Lake, Lake, Lingster Camp, whatever her fucking name Nancy. is. Nancy. Nancy from the A Nightmare on Elm Street films. Yes. Is quite possibly the worst actor <laughs> ever. Oh, man. She is so Nancy, bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nancy, come on the show. Please. You could pretend that I'm not wrong and it'll be. But you won't be that good at it. No, we'll know right through it. No, she's terrible. She's so bad. There's a great documentary, if you can stomach it, about all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. She produced it and she narrates it and she's on screen presenting it. Oh boy. She can't act as herself talking about movies. Yeah. It's like my parents' beagle (laughs) is a better actor. He can pretend. Like, he wants to go outside so he can treat. <laughs> better. <laughs> better than her. Like, it's all, he's got dogs got to go to the bathroom. We take him outside, and he just goes right back to the door. It's like, oh, he's just he fooled us again. Is he, my beef, though, is that sometimes Craven is good when he's allowed to actually have the ensemble thing. Yeah. When he's actually allowed to direct them as an ensemble, as them actually, it's not close-ups, and shot by shot, he's allowed to actually direct it more in a little bit like a theater play where he grows a kind of camaraderie and sort of connection with the actors. I think that's why A Nightmare on Elm Street and Last House and then eventually another movie we'll talk about because he was allowed to shoot it that way. They have more of a naturalistic feel because it is now at this point, people just interacting, people who know each other. And so you can get rid of some of the flaws of bad acting because they don't have to really act. They just have to react. And in terms of like Johnny Depp and stuff and (laughs) more superior actors to themselves and it raises it. But Nick, do you like the movie Shocker? 
Not at all. Yeah, it's bad. Spoiler alert, everybody. It is about a guy who gets electrocuted in the electric chair, and then he becomes electricity, and he shocks, shocks. You might have seen the better version as a Treehouse of Horrors where Homer gets O'Hare and then kills everybody. It's kind of true. It's bad. Yeah. It's also, maybe if this movie was eight minutes, it'd be a lot better. And also his last of the Universal, as I said, in 1991, he makes what is, in my opinion, his worst movie, I think. Yeah. The people under the stairs. Fucking piece of shit. The best thing about the whole movie is the title. It seems like it would be a cool movie. Like the people under the stairs. I swear to God, they Ed Wood this. (laughs) They had a poster and they go, here you go, Wes, make something for this. He goes, all right, cool. And he just left and came back with this. I feel like these movies, as they went on, just went through less and less drafts. This was a first draft. If barely. Yeah. It was written as they were doing This is like when um, David Lynch made Inland Empire, except they were trying to do practical makeup effects (laughs) on set with people. And it just, we talked about this, I think, earlier, where it's like, this is the first one that doesn't look like a film. The first time I saw this was on TNT for Monster Vision with Joe Bob Briggs. And I honestly was like, oh, did they make a movie? It's like, oh, no, it's the people downslope of Wes Craven's (laughs) career. But it isn't, though. It just is this weird middle. It's this crappy middle. It's up and down. I know, but now he's working for Universal Pictures. He is. So does Vin Diesel. I know, but, but what I'm saying is that he came out of true indie and... He directed porno for a while. Yeah. And now he has a three-picture deal. So did Vin Diesel. <laughs> well, he was in them. Yeah. Um, That's a pitch-perfect rendition of Vin Diesel's voice. I thought it was in the apartment. I was ready to set it on fire. <laughs> but he's with the big dogs. He is now at the major, major leagues. And those are the three movies he puts out. Yeah. <laughs> they are trash. Maybe he did the Neil Young thing where he's just like, I want to make the three worst fucking things I, I can I wonder, and get off I, of this contract. I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder if he just really came up against it with it because these movies didn't make any money. They failed. They a little bit have become cult movies because all horror movies. People are morons. I know. And he's so good at. People eat blood sausage. I know. He's so good at titles and posters and stuff. And that was enough to save you in the VHS horror Poster's market. great. Yeah. All of his. His poster's so good. People are using it as a flyer for yeah. their live shows. <laughs> if you will. After that, he returns to his pals. He goes back to New Line Cinema and he makes Wes Craven's New Nightmare. A meta take on Freddy Krueger in which Freddy Krueger escapes movies themselves and comes after Nick's favorite actress. What's her name? Heather Locklear. Heather Bergergin. Uh, not Ingram Bergman. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. It's not a bad, not a bad idea that Freddy is so powerful. He escapes movies themselves and comes after the actors who are in the Freddy movies. It just, uh, what do you think of Wes Craven's new nightmare, Nick? It's meta-terrible. <laughs> uh, no, don't use that. Heather Langenkamp. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is the person who buys a car before they get their license and they fail the test. Okay. 
I see. You, he had a great idea, and everybody's on board. It's like, yeah, I'm even going to star in this movie as myself. And then it's just terrible. It's so bad. It's not scary. I tried rewatching this the other day. Yeah. 20 minutes. Couldn't yeah. do it. Oh, it's terrible. It's so bad. I know. It's Heather well. Lampkin, Heather Lampkin Camp Camp <laughs> is playing herself. I know. And she fucking says her lines. Like she keeps forgetting who the character is. She talks like Hulk Hogan when Hulk Hogan tries to act. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Tommy uh, Wiseau. It's a family affair. Uh, Freddy Krueger. Uh, uh, I just have nightmares. Sometimes they come back. Oh, it's so- that's a better movie. Sometimes they come back. <laughs> I would. The trailer was creepy to me. I was like, "Well, I'm going to see this." We have to say this. Excellent trailers. All of his all movies. Of, he's so good he, at that kind of stuff. Yeah, they sold the Last House and Left by saying, "Just keep repeating yourself." It's only a movie. Yeah. It starts off with a heart attack warning. Mm-hmm. I remember the exact moment I watched the Scream trailer in my parents' house. Oh, yeah. I know the day and the time. The trailer for West Craven's New Nightmare sells it so well. There's a scene in the trailer where it's like, what's going on? And West Craven goes, cut the effect, cut the effect. Yeah, he's and in it. He's in it. And then you watch the movie and he says it. And I'm like, oh, I'm not scared at all. This no. movie's <laughs> going to be fucking terrible. But it does bring up the idea of him starting to mess around with meta and messing with meta filmmaking. He's always good at the production value. The scores are always solid in his movies. It's just, it's not very scary. And as it's you not scary said, at all. It's not scary at all. And it's dumb and it doesn't work. And it's kind of. Ugh. So the ending is preposterously stupid. Preposterously. She survives the new nightmare. Where it's, you know, last action hero, but not as fun. And at the end of it, she saves her kid. They kill the real Freddy. Her husband's dead. And then she gets a call from Wes Craven. who's all like, do you like the new script? I wrote it just for you. She's like, oh, thank you, Wes. I've always depended on the kindness of people getting new line deals or some <laughs> shit. I fucking don't remember. But it's like, dude, your husband's still dead. Why are you acting like Wes Craven's your best friend? He killed your husband by writing to a screenplay that attacks your life. Just finish it. Just cut it. And uh, and we're done. Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. It's over. The entire piece of shit movie. During my research, saw an interview with him where he said that when that movie was done, he said to himself on the last day, he was like, well, that's the end of my career. <laughs> he, literally, he literally was like, well. That's the end of me being a film director. This is the end. And it's 1994, so some of his other friends, Sean S. Cunningham, had gotten yeah. kind of booted. John Carpenter was writing about, uh, you know, uh, Escape from L.A. You know, I mean, there's... Escape like, from L.A. was two years later. I know, but... In 94, he was making remakes of Village of the Dam, so he was the same spot. Right, and Wes is like, I mean, I made a lot of money, and I get my residual checks from creating Freddy and... Uh, I think I'm done. But strangely enough, he talked about how he had the same agent and by weird happenstance, his agent was like, Eddie Murphy wants to meet you. (laughs) He was like, Eddie Murphy wants to meet me. What are you talking about? And he went to Eddie Murphy's super amazing penthouse condo in Manhattan. And he talked about how Eddie Murphy, when he came into this amazing, like three story penthouse that Eddie Murphy came down the stairs, the spiral staircase, and he was wearing a bathrobe. And he was like, hey, Wes. And when he came down to the bottom of the stairs, there was a piano. 
And Eddie Murphy started playing on the piano and just kind of just messing around with it and was awesome. Was just playing something. And they turned and just started quoting the hills have eyes to and Wes Craven was like, what is happening? What the shit is going See, on? This is a funnier and scarier movie than Vampire. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I guess him and Eddie hit it off. And then Eddie said, I want to make a scary movie that I star in. And because I'm a big star, Paramount, who is, you know, kind of the house that he worked for, he saved Paramount a couple of different times. And they have said, Eddie, you can make whatever you want and you can hire whoever you want as the director. And I want to hire you to make a scary movie starring me. And Wes was like, kind of a scary, funny movie. And Eddie goes, no, I don't want it to be funny at all. And Wes was like, Inside of his head, he said, well, I'm fucked <laughs> because I have to do this in order to keep my career going. But I know it's going to suck because everyone's going to hate it because of Eddie Murphy not being funny. And what do you think about Vampire in Brooklyn, Nick? I'd rather not. <laughs> 95, right? Yeah. I saw this one time. I saw the premiere of it at HBO. <laughs> it wasn't even like a Saturday night premiere. It was a Thursday night premiere. I was a stupid 13-year-old kid, and it was so bad I started doing my homework. I'll give Wes credit. He said the most disappointing thing was he said that Eddie was so talented and he would play all these characters, and whatever he told him to do, he would do. And the movie itself, the script, it just – he was like, it doesn't work. This movie doesn't work. And he just couldn't convince Eddie to not agree with him. It's one of those few times where a big director has a star who has literally said, do this. And he did it, and he, the whole movie is like, hey, what if we made it kind of something else, like a little weirder and a little more esoteric and kind of funnier and more mayhem? And but he was like, no, I want an old Bela Lugosi vampire movie in which I star in. But, <laughs> like that's the problem with this movie is that yeah. they did change the movie a little bit, where it's like they gave the guy from a different world, oh. a different world TV show, all the jokes. And none of them were funny. A lot of those are reshoots. Yeah. That's also, Paramount trying to save it later. Even the parts that weren't reshoots, everybody else was doing a comedy. Mm. And Eddie Murphy was doing Bela Lugosi. Yeah. Apparently, it got away from everybody. That movie got away from everybody. And it's notorious. Go back and listen to our Eddie Murphy episode. It is brutal. Still better than Pluto Nash. Absolutely. And unlike who released Pluto Nash, Paramount Pictures is still around. Also, I've seen Vampire in Brooklyn a couple of times. It's not a good movie, but weirdly enough, it's a movie different than like The People Under the Stairs, which is no, just it's a, a, shit it's a show. movie. It looks like a movie. Yeah, way too many jokes in there about Brooklyn. It's just <sighs> compared to his previous movies, it's not only dull; it's just unoffensive to the point where. You forget it's on. Like, if you were doing something or somebody else was there, or you were just, like, manically depressed, staring at the wall, <laughs> you would look over and be like, is that still on? Oh, my God. I have to change my life. How long has this been happening? I'm going to call my therapist. I Angela will Bassett is there? Angela Bassett is in that movie. It's you brutal. Know. It's, oh, man. Angela Bassett's amazing. Yeah. It makes no sense that she would do that. It makes <sighs> no sense anyone would do this. And he was at the last elements of his height of power. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Where he could just say, Wes Craven, you work for me now. And he was like, I guess. I, I got to. I mean, also, after all those flops, Wes Craven was like, yeah, 
This would be great. If after New Nightmare, you're like, my career's over, and then a very famous actor is like, direct a movie for me. You do it. You do it. Wes Craven is the exact opposite of Oliver Stone. He makes all these bad, stupid movies, but you still root for him. Right. Where it's like, Oliver Stone, if you have Patreon, can listen to that episode. But like, I don't want Oliver Stone to ever do anything again. I think also that Wes, when you hear him in interviews and when you realize kind of why he kept getting gigs, it was because people liked him. He was very smart. He was very personable. He was very humble, with the exception of he put his name on stuff. As you said, there wasn't this kind of like, I know what I'm talking about. He was willing to work with people. He was truly trying to be a director, an artist, a collaborator, and he would be like, okay. He was a professor. Yeah. And that comes across when you listen to him talk. He's like the cool college professor who will help you re-roll your joint. Yeah. But then he'll just smoke his one hitter while you guys are standing (laughs) in the park. My weed is better. Yeah. And once again, he said in the same interview, he was like, and then when I did Vampire in Brooklyn, I was sure that my career was over. I was sure that I was done. It was the end. And then one of which was actually a monster. The Weinstein brothers at the beginning of their mega power, they create a side part of their studio, a side part of Miramax called Dimension Films which was their horror movie branch. And they were taking shots on people. They were taking shots on Quentin Tarantino. They were taking shots on P.T. Anderson. They were taking shots on a lot of auteurs. And they decided that they were going to talk to Wes Craven because they knew he was kind of down and out. And they said, what do you want to do? What would you like to do? Is there like a movie kicking around that's not, you're not trying to pitch us because they approached him, which he said was like the first time that it happened of when he finally had gotten into Hollywood where he was not doing pitch meetings. They approached him and said, do you have an idea rattling around inside of you that you want to make? And after New Nightmare, he kind of said that the meta thing kept sticking around in his head. And as he was thinking about it, he said to himself, well, that was too heavy handed with Freddy. Freddy's too big a character. But if I could make a, at this point, a meta horror movie, because so many people are horror movie nerds. And if I made something where, say, there are killers who are trying to reenact horror movies and he pitched them that and the Weinstein brothers, to their credit, were like, dude, let's roll. And he makes, in my opinion, his masterpiece in 1996, his most important movie still to this day, a movie that I find very charming and very fun. And he makes Scream in 1996. And we've talked about a bunch, starring a bunch of young actors, David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, and someone named Drew Barrymore. And it is not just a hit. It is beyond a hit. It is one of the hugest culturally changing horror movies, maybe movies of all time. So many movies have copied it. So much of like cinema culture changed after it came out. It was such a mind fuck in certain ways, but also just a fun, stupid movie. It's such a weird conflagration of those two things. What do you think of Scream, Nick? It's all right. (laughs) I like it. The more we talk about those other movies, the more I appreciate it. But I also still just... I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. I rewatched it yesterday with uh, super producer Brian Tepps. It was on at the bar. But um, honestly, it's like an Oreo cookie. I like the bookends. Mm. I feel like it's not as clever as it thinks it is in the middle. Mm. 
they mix up a lot of things. But that beginning scene is fucking iconic. Absolutely. It's amazing and it's perfect. And the middle stuff, I don't care about the 25-year-old teenagers. I really don't like Jamie Kennedy. But when you get to the end, also spoilers on this fucking 30-year-old movie. When you get to the end and Nev Campbell's backing up into the house and then Skeet Ulrich comes down the stairs covered in corn syrup. When they do the James Bond ending and everybody gets to act as deranged as they fucking want. Love it. And it sort of just starts embracing horror movie cliches. Yes. It's a great fucking ending. And also in terms of twists, when I saw it in the theater and the boyfriends are the murderers. I I don't want to be that guy, but I guessed it immediately. Fair. That's fair. But I didn't think they would have the balls to do it. You know, I think that was more. I was like, wait, are the boyfriends the murderers? And then when it happens, and as you said, it becomes nuts. Yeah. It's them just stabbing people and stabbing each other. And the boyfriends are the murderers. And he gets a guy who sort of looks like Johnny Depp. He sort of metas even his own movies, his own auteur stuff to mess with you. The good guys are the bad guys. Oh, man, I loved it. It was so cool. I had been waiting as a teenage me for a sort of grungy 90s horror movie that actually spoke to me. And for me, I think it's kind of the only one. I'm a big fan of Event Horizon. Yeah. Actually, I'm not. Um, You love it. You have a tattoo. It's it's pretty good, but it has Event Horizon, Sam Neill in it with his eyes cut out. What the fuck? I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyways. Two things I want to mention real fast. (laughs) Yeah. First of all. As much as you'd like. For the other Weinstein brother, if you enable a monster, you're a monster. The second thing yeah, is well, the original the, orig- family, the original though. script. Uh, no, no, no. The original script for A New Nightmare was what Wes wrote for A Nightmare on Street 3 because he wanted to end the series. Yeah. And New Line was like, no, write something else. So then he wrote Nightmare on Street 3. So that idea was around for a decade before he got to make it. As you said, and he, you could tell how stale that idea is. Yeah. Whereas Scream, you could tell it was a fresh idea mm-hmm. where he gets his once a decade, like, complete fucking victory dance. I mean, really. And probably the culmination of the victory dance. The, you know, he created Freddy and he created Ghostface. You know, he created these two horror icons, these horror concepts that are totally different in certain ways but are unique ideas, at least at the time. And it changed the whole damn game. And then, you know, after that, though, in a way, that I mean, he made other stuff. We could talk about it. I don't know if you want to talk about Music of the Heart. Did you ever see Music of the Heart? I did. It's Which, another stupid it's white musical. savior movie. <laughs> it's not his horror movie. This is He got to finally make a not-horror movie. And it's trash. It's trash. <laughs> If you know you're not you you take Meryl Streep and Gloria Stefan. Good on him for getting Gloria Stefan. <laughs> Gloria Stefan, I love Miami Sound Machine, but she cannot fucking act for shit. <laughs> the whole time just going, I'm Gloria Stefan. Oh yeah, we know that. You get a Meryl Streep movie under your belt and you make this crap? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. I just think I want to keep talking about Scream, but like he directed Scream 2, he directed Scream 3, he directed Scream 4. All yeah, he put Jamie Kennedy in two films. So obviously, the man making a lot of mistakes in his life. There was a little moment where, because of Scream, Jamie Kennedy had a career. I know. <laughs> and so he had to bring him back. He had to. 
Also, weirdly, in Scream, Jimmy Kennedy is also the final girl <laughs> because he's the most meta. And he made a movie called Cursed with Miramax starring uh, Christina Ricci, Joshua Jackson, and Jesse Eisenberg. This uh, is not real. Yeah, it's... Uh, oh, another movie written by Kevin Williamson. Yeah, That's what explains yes. this. Also, we should bring up Kevin Williamson wrote Scream. And, you know, he worked with him a lot. And then he made a DreamWorks movie called Red Eye with Rachel McAdams. And Killian Murphy. Yeah, and... I'm a huge Killian Murphy fan. Yeah. I don't think I hit 30 minutes on this. Yeah, but also it did bounce him back, though. Red Eye cost $26 million to make and made $196 million. But also, to be fair... I think it only made $96 million. Did it? Yeah. Oh, weird. My but it's still, it's still more than fucking... It's also, Scream made way more than $173 million. Like, maybe at the box office in America, it made $173 million. But altogether, Ghostface... Masks still sold at Party City with a Scream tag on it. I mean, the amount of money that Scream made is insane. The amount of still to this day Blu-ray copies of it that I'm sure are sold. It's something else. And Scream for me is his masterpiece. Once again, though, Scream was an ensemble. He got an ensemble cast together that all worked together. Matthew Lillard and Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich and let them kind of run wild to the point where they had the Wayans brothers make their best movie ever as a parody of it because it worked together as this crazy ensemble. And then they made an ensemble comedy that was called scary movie. I don't know. It's wild style. Before we finish though, Nick, I think we should touch on the scream sequels. What's your favorite scream sequel, Nick scream Two. Where she goes to art school? She goes to art school, and then the killers are Lori Metcalf and Timothy Oliphant? Yeah, yeah. What the fuck are yeah. you doing? What the fuck are you? I saw Scream 2 in the theater because I loved the first Scream so much, and I saw it like three times in the theater, and I saw it one time. <laughs> I'll put it this way. Scream 2's ending was the stupid ending. I thought, you know, as I'm a horror movie nerd like yourself, like Brian Tepps, as I'm watching the original Scream, I'm like, well, the boyfriends are a fake out. It's going to be the history teacher or something stupid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's going to be something stupid like that. And then when it turns out it is the boyfriends and it's a psychotic Menendez brothers ending. I was like, oh, man, this is something else. So dumb. But Scream 2 is the theater teacher. Yeah. <laughs> is the bad guy. Woo! so stupid see like the first one has the james bond ending but it's like mm -hmm. the james bond ending where where mads is torturing james right. bond yes where this one is like all the roger moore endings where it's like <laughs> oh so why are we going to do that <laughs> i'm gonna stop you <laughs> i've had enough of your antics england yeah. I, I guess. And like Officer Dewey Cox is just. Oh, much. my God. Yeah. Our, yeah. Arnette. I mean. Come on, dude. <laughs> Officer How, Doofy. Doofy. <laughs> How is he perpetually like I a 14 year old kid in dress up? I don't know, man. I don't know. It is a bummer that Scream Forest is last movie. Wes also, we should say, produced lots of movies, executive produced. He gave money to a lot of younger directors. James and Wan. they made crap. A lot of them were crap, but to his credit, like, for instance, James Wan and uh, the guys who made Hostel. I'm not big fans of these movies, but 
he was a cool dude. He was like, these are younger guys who are in a similar position to me. And he basically financed some of their movies when other people wouldn't finance their movies. And no one should have. I saw Dracula 2000 in theaters. Yeah. With a bunch of assholes. It was so bad that like, I was like, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. And then eventually like, you can't come back in. I was like, well, I'm going to go back inside. I, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Shout out to the Logan theater for letting me smoke a cigarette during Lincoln. <laughs> The story of Wes as a person seems like he was a much cooler dude <laughs> than he gets credit for. He really helped out a lot of people and, you know, he died of cancer, I believe, and kind of a bummer. I know he was in his 70s, but still not that old these days and kind of a loss, I think, especially because who knows, as at least of his track record, he was running around making a weird game changing masterpiece every decade for three decades and didn't really pull one off at the end, but what are you going to do? So I think it's time. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School. Dumpster. Dumpster sound. All right, Nick. What is your dumpster? I'll do Last House on the Left. <laughs> you don't like gratuitous rape scene? I don't know if they're gratuitous. I should say No, they that. are. Are they? I don't know. Yeah. It's a weird movie. Don't watch that movie with your parents. Don't watch that movie. <laughs> I'm going to say people under the stairs. Those kids are bad at acting. You don't like gratuitous non-acting? Dude, the guy from Twin Peaks is bad at it. Oh Everyone is bad God. at it. This is... The set looks like trash. Usually that's at least something he's good at. And that set is awful. Yeah. It looks like garbage. It looks like a high school set that up as a haunted house inside of an abandoned Kmart. The entire movie looks like... A soap opera had a Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, like yeah. said in a hospital. Yeah, totally. I agree. That's the episode of Full House where it's the scary episode. Yeah. You're like, oh, here we go. Here we go. We're going to give a bunch of pills to Heath Ledger. <gasps> There's Ooh. someone in the walls. There's daddy. Once again, that treehouse of horror where Bart's twin lives in the walls is a better horror movie than the people under the stairs. Yeah. Hugo. Hugo. Three kids, homie. We have three kids. <laughs> Too crazy for boys town. Too much of a boy for crazy town. He was an outcast. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's go into the penultimate, the blockbuster film school. Wall. Wall sound. It's time for the blockbuster film school wall. All right, Nick. I'm worried about you. What is your number three for Wesley Craven? Which was his real name, by the way. Oh. Yeah, he didn't change it. He had a-, a girl's name. Abe Snake was a dude. <laughs> it's not his name when he was directing porno. She was stuck with Abe Snake. His Wikipedia says it is not known how many porno movies Wes Craven directed. Wow. <laughs> what a weird thing to be prolific at. <laughs> Also good to hide in it. So my number three is going to be Scream. Okay. Don't get too excited. <laughs> my number three is... Um, I don't like so many of his movies. Yeah, it's fair. I understand entirely. I think my number three is Shocker. It's shocker. It's so stupid. I like watching it sometimes. It's so stupid. 
I, left I don't my, like him off camera. I laugh my balls. He's right, though. I laugh my balls off when I watch Shocker. I almost even liked the movie because a friend of mine, his older brother, was one of the dudes who sort of was a cool guy and, like, exposed us to all kinds of terrible stuff. And I remember that he had a poster for Shocker on his wall, and he had a bunch of horror movie posters. And I was like, this guy knows what Super Nintendo games are good. I think I'm going to ask him which Super Nintendo games I should buy. Nick, what's your number two? Well, I said I couldn't pick it as my number one on my wall because it's not the whole movie, but I'm going to go with the basketball scene from Deadly Friend. <laughs> for number two. That's fair. If it's not number one, yeah. then I'm not being an asshole. Yeah. But it's number two, I've grown as a person and something else I haven't figured out yet. Also true. Also true. My number two, I think my two and one are pretty obvious, but two for me is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the Ridge. I dig it. I saw an interview with him where he talked about how one of the things he wanted to do was that always the hyperviolence in horror movies was you turned away from it, right? They cut away from it. And he said... I don't want to just do gratuitous violence of someone getting hit in the head with an axe or something. And you see that because that always looks fake. But if I make a movie that's dreamlike and psychedelic and I show the violence in that of the actual invisible monster, you know, slashing your chest, it's the opposite. You don't see the killer. So you have to imagine the killer but you see the violence. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't truly see what happens to Johnny Depp when he gets sucked into the bed, but you see the geyser of blood. Like it's a cool idea. It's a cool concept of twisting that little cinema idea on its head. And I think it's just a fun movie. Nick, what is your number one Wes Craven movie? Music of the heart. (laughs) I <laughs> the scariest of all the- Gloria Estefan <laughs> and Meryl Streep's Yugoslavian accent. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. It's-, it's like watching somebody like pull a plug on somebody in a hospital and like, oh no, I'm gonna live for another 90 minutes. Like, oh shit. Beep, beep, beep. Uh my number one is gonna be Nightmare on Elm Street 3 of the Dream Warriors. Oh, yeah. It is. He wrote that one, right? He wrote it. No one acts in it except for Patricia Arquette. She's amazing. She acts her balls off in that. She is. Arquette's again. Yeah. She is Ewan McGregor from uh, the prequels. Mm -mm. But it's a really dumb movie, but it has some amazing kills. And I feel like it had a bigger budget, but it was like ideas he was holding on to for a while. Yeah. And he got really weird with it. And also. I'm just really happy that it didn't end up being New Nightmare. Agreed. I'm just very glad that New Line existed and that Freddy Krueger was able to just keep New Line chugging chugging, so they could make other stuff. I think that's the thing that no matter what, Wes Craven and Freddy Krueger <laughs> were able to give us boogie nights. You know, like at the end of the day, they were able to just give us Ninja Turtles. I appreciate it. And for me, it's Scream. Scream is my one. It is the one that I truly unabashedly love. I don't give a shit. And also maybe it's nostalgia. Maybe I was the absolute target demographic audience at the moment that it came out. I realized I was a mark. I was a fucking rube. And it's very possible the movie is not that good. But I was there at that moment. And I love the shit out of it. And I still love it. 
and fucking die in here, man. The nonsense of it and Matthew Lillard and Rose McGowan's hot nips. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing works. I enjoy it. Any other final thoughts on Mr. Wes Craven, Nick? His movies weren't all great, but at least he wasn't Oliver Stone. That is, wow, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I appreciate that the guy had balls on him, that took some shots and did some stuff. He escaped his crazy-ass religious family, made a bunch of cool stuff, lifted up a bunch of cool people, and uh, R.I.P. Wes, I appreciate you as an artist and a filmmaker. And some of your movies were really bad, but then you bounce back, and I appreciate that even more, that you didn't just continue to make sucky movies all the time. You bounced back a couple of times and made some pretty good ones. So good on you, man. Well, everybody, that I believe is our episode. Thank you so much for listening and following us. Please follow us on Instagram, DJ Nick, a.k.a. Nicholas Souter does an amazing job. I don't know. Is it DJ? I'm an asshole. Uh, he does an amazing job on our Instagram Super producer Brian Tepps is always rocking it Check out our website Brian Tepps is always keeping that up It looks dope We are going to have a live show at The Native But we're going to try to do some more live shows in the future So if this works out good Maybe we'll do some more And if you thought we didn't like Wes Craven On tape Or oh, pre-recorded <laughs> Wait till you hear Let's do it live. (laughs) And you'll hear all the things that Brian cannot cut out. (laughs) Well, live at least. Come to the show. There's going to be more of a just open mockery of us. Yes. I'm going to, Alex and I discussed this earlier. I'm going to go full Clean Eastwood. I'm going to set up a chair and invite his ghost. And he's not going to show up. And I'm just going to roast his dead ass. Look at your goatee, you ass. Nobody's head. Wes Craven. More like Wes Layman. You nailed it. Actually, he was a professor. He wasn't a layman at all. Yeah, he was very smart. Whatever. (laughs) Who's such a dick? Who cares? (laughs) I love the guy. R.I.P. Wes. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Super producer Brian Tepsch is the best. And uh, remember to drive your car real fast, do drugs, be excellent to each other. We love you. See you guys later. Next week. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy holidays.